Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh, he broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Just End the Suffering podcast, a New York podcast talking New York sports from the point of view of a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phelps. Got a little bonus coverage for you this week. We did a tennis podcast earlier in the week with Ben Rothenberg of the NCR Tennis Podcast. I'll be joined in just a second by Christopher Clary, who covers tennis in the New York Times. We will talk some more U.S. Open coverage there. A lot of fun storylines coming out of the event this year. The first major Grand Slam for tennis since... Since the coronavirus pandemic uh, recently shut the sport down, we had the Australian Open in January under normal circumstances. The French Open got pushed back. It's not coming two weeks after the end of the U.S. Open. The Wimbledon got canceled for this year, pushed back to next year, and they had pandemic insurance. U.S. Open building a bubble around its site. Cincinnati tournament taking place this week. The U.S. Open itself taking place next week. All on the Arthur Ashe, Billie Jean King National Tennis Center set up here. And it's going to be interesting to see what this looks like going forward. Now, let's go ahead and welcome in Christopher Clary to the podcast. All right, I am back here on the podcast talking U.S. Open for the second time this week. Joining me today is the man who covers tennis for the New York Times, Christopher Cray. Christopher, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Doing very good, and I'm glad I get to talk to you this week because you've been doing a lot of interesting stories about the U.S. Open for the New York Times this week, including you had a very interesting piece. You had a conversation with Novak Djokovic that came out uh, earlier this week. Can you tell me a little bit about that Novak interview and some of the interesting stuff that came out of it? Well, I just said Novak is, uh, doesn't give many interviews at the stage of his career. And, um, during this pandemic period, he's had a, a lot going on. I mean, he's done some great things for tennis and probably for his brand. If you want to, you want to call it that in terms of just donations and COVID relief and working hard for the players in tennis who don't make the kind of salary that he makes. And there are a lot of people that are kind of on the bubble in tennis that are on the edge of making it or not making it financially. And he's made some efforts to help them out. But on the, on the flip side, he's had some comments about vaccinations that were, that caused a lot of uh, raised eyebrows and, and about the healing qualities of emotions on water and different things like that. And then above all, he had this uh, exhibition series in Serbia and Croatia that, Really turned into a bit of a fiasco with people testing positive, including himself and his wife, and not a lot of social distancing and images of them dancing in nightclubs, and and just it seemed really out of tune with the times in most of the world. Even though in Serbia and Croatia things were more um, you know under control then, so that, that's part of the explanation. But there was just all these things that happened, and he hadn't talked about any of them. So he's coming to New York. He finally made a decision to come after hesitating for a long time and making a lot of demands. So it was a important to get his perspective and I've known him since he was a teenager as a journalist covered him first at the open in his very first U.S. Open when he was a teenager so it's, it's a long-standing connection I've been to Serbia where he's from the mountains where he grew up learned the game 
So it was it was good to check in with him, and you know he didn't he didn't back away from everything. I think he apologized in some ways for what happened in Serbia, but he also tried to put it in context and said the intentions were good, and you know, explained some of his vaccination philosophies about the fact he wasn't against all vaccinations, more just for himself in terms of mandatory stuff. So it's it was a whole bunch of different topics. So it was really one of those interviews. And much better to do it in person, but. In this era, we can't get together, so it had to be by Zoom in his uh, rented house in, uh, in the uh, near New York. And he's here, and he's getting ready to play uh, the Western and Southern Open and the U.S. Open both. Yeah, he is, and I will say he's probably the biggest name on the men's side. And like, how big a deal do you think it is for the for the for the uh, U.S. Open itself that he actually committed to come? Because I think it would have had a hard time selling to like the casual audience without any of the big three there. I agree. I think it was huge, and I think that was part of the thing. I mean. I, you know, I think um, in a normal year, if you would have had Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, and you know, missing Novak, okay, they blow. He's number one player in the world. He's won five of the last seven Slams, three-time champion in New York. But this year, with Federer out with injury and Nadal deciding not to come, and and uh, really, he's the only marquee men's player that's there. I mean, you can argue that I guess that Andy Murray is coming back from hip injury, and he's going to be in the field, but he's hasn't really been front and center for a couple of years now. Novak's the man, and if he hadn't come, it would have been a no doubt an asterisk on the on the men's U.S. Open this year because you would have had none of the guys who've been regularly winning slams for the last fifteen years in the field, and he's the number one guy uh, by a fair bit right now, quite rightly. So, huge thing for them, and I think that's probably why they <laughs> played ball so much and all the demands and conversations and tried to accommodate him as much as they could. Yeah, they do need him for the TV audience. And I do think it'll be interesting seeing how this event plays without the fans there because, as you know, somebody's been there quite a bit, that the fans do add a lot to that atmosphere. They, The night match to Arthur Ashe can become really crazy, really exciting. And not having them there, I'm really fascinated to see how it works for some of these players who like to play off of the crowd. Yeah, I mean, Novak's often not been the favorite in New York, obviously. I remember the 2015 final against Federer as one of the most, I mean, tennis isn't like... Uh, you know, boxing or, or soccer or basketball or college football. I mean, it's a, but that was a very partisan crowd, you know, to the point of being unfair, I thought, to him and kind of hostile. So he's definitely faced a whole bunch of different things. And he's, he does tend to feed out the energy, be it positive or be it negative in a stadium. But I think it's interesting, having watched a fair bit now of these uh, non spectator tennis events, for the TV audience, you know, because you have so much quiet during tennis matches anyway. If the angle of the camera is such that you can see the court and pick up a little bit of atmosphere from players themselves, you get quickly used to it. I don't think it's ideal. But obviously the, the idea of playing in Arthur Ashe Stadium, which is 20,000 plus, the biggest regular tennis stadium in the world, and also very vertical, if you can see that and you're in the stadium and you feel there's nobody there for a match, it's still completely dead, no atmosphere. But if they frame it right on TV and and you don't, get that in your face all the time. I, I mean, the intensity of the matches is going to be there, no doubt. I have, I can, having already watched WTA events on tour the last couple of weeks, the intensity is there. It's almost a more focused sort of vibe because the players are so much into themselves and they don't have any distractions. But yeah. if you sense that the stadium is empty, it's going to be, it's going to be uh, I think, a really bad atmosphere. Yeah, that's for sure. And another thing I read from you this week talking about the U.S. Open bubble that they built for both the Western and Southern Open and the U.S. Open. I'm very intrigued to see how this plays out because this is the first real, like, true bubble that tennis really has it's with these two events taking place here. I did think it was interesting how they said they're only using some stadiums with 
like using the grandstand for the Western and Southern main events and using some using Arthur Ashe and Louis Armstrong for the U.S. Open main events itself. I'm intrigued by that, seeing how they play this. Yeah, they're trying to do something that's so rarely done in tennis. I mean, you, you might have a, a, a Davis Cup match or a Fed Cup match in the same stadium you have at a, you know, a, a big tournament in, but to have back-to-back like this, two events that are separate identities and trying to create a different feel for them is going to be a real challenge, but that's one of the ways they're doing it. They're using the grandstand for the Western and Southern, and they won't use it for the U.S. Open. And not that on TV you're going to, I think, sense that as much, but I think that that's their attempt to try to do that, and you have some different signage and everything else. But the most important thing really is the health and safety and the bubble and how it works. Early returns on it, there was obviously a positive test with a uh, fitness trainer from Argentina earlier in the week. I'm sure that scared everybody. They seem to have locked that down. We'll see where it goes. But from what I hear, they've made a lot of efforts to keep, you know, the players in a good spot, you know, some good diversions, but pretty much under lock and key. And they got a lot of room to roam around on the grounds with the USTA center there. So, you know, it could be a, it's a risky thing in a way, but I feel like based on other sports and what they had managed to do with the NBA and soccer and different sports, I think they need to make the attempt to try to do it. And, and I guess the finances make sense or enough sense for the USTA to try to pull it off. Yeah, and they do have a bit of a challenge in their hands as well because they do lose Federer and Nadal on the men's side. They don't have six of the top ten women's players on that side. Do you think the lack of the star power will hurt this event a bit? Or do you think the novelty being the first major back will sort of balance that out? Well, I don't know about globally because obviously you got a lot of Europeans missing and you got Ash Barty, who's the number one women's player from Australia. But frankly, the biggest star in the women's game is... Probably the biggest two stars in the women's game right now are still in New York. It's Serena Williams, obviously, and then you've got uh, Naomi Osaka, who's young and only won a couple of slams, but has already made a has a big personality and a big following. So I think those two being there make the women's event very intriguing. And women's tennis has been extremely you know deep and balanced and unpredictable for the last couple of years, anyway, maybe the last three years. So just because you're missing six of the top ten doesn't mean you don't have players who would have been capable of winning anyway. It hurts. I think you need to make mention of that in the in the future. We talk about this tournament, but star power wise, they're okay. And on the men's side, I think they're they're hurting a little bit. They got Novak, and then they got Andy Murray in. I don't think Murray will last very long. And then you've got a bunch of these young guys who are trying to make a name for themselves, like Medvedev, who lost to Nadal in the final last year and kind of took on the crowd in New York and charmed some and turned some off. And then you've got guys like Stefano Tsitsipas from Greece, who's very charismatic, got a fun game to watch. And then the guy who I think is the biggest threat is Dominic Team, who's um, played a couple of Grand Slam finals, almost beat Novak before the pandemic in Australia in the final, took him to five sets. He's a fabulous player, um, flashy, not a real flashy personality, but he's a guy who I think is ready to win a Grand Slam. So we'll see if he can do it here. Yeah, speaking of Dominic Team, are you surprised he came here? Because I thought maybe he would be more incentivized to try and point himself towards the French Open because he's more a natural clay core. Are you surprised he actually decided to come and give himself a shot here? Yeah, I think he can play on anything, frankly. He's, he's done well on grass, even in some of the minor events. But I mean, he obviously taking Novak to five sets on a hard court that's quite similar at the Australian Open to the one they use in New York is it <laughs> means he's okay. And he beat better in the Indian Wells final last year on, on a hard court. So he's he can beat anybody anywhere, anytime. And he also had a great match with Nadal, remember, a couple of years ago at the U.S. Open, another five-setter on a hard court. So I, I think he feels his chances are good. And I think he, uh, he was one of the guys who who actually played the most exhibition tennis during the break, but a lot of events in Europe. Um, looks pretty good. I've watched him play quite a lot. Um, haven't seen him play a five-set match in a while, obviously, but I think he, 
he's very hungry for this first title, and I think he knows inside that having played a lot during the break, having the form right now, this is a great chance for him, and I think I think he does have a great chance. Yeah, I do think it's a big opportunity for people on the men's side of the draw because the big three have sort of been a like a stranglehold on all of those slams, and now there, there's opportunity out here, especially if Novak doesn't come out sharp. Somebody could really steal a slam here. Absolutely. You don't know how Novak's going to come up here. I mean, he hasn't played much at all in five months. Um, he's 18-0 and 0 on the year. He was started out the year in, in great shape. But in my view, I think just the fact that people are going to be coming back without having any best-of-five set references for a while and and not really any big competitive references, it's a little, it could be a little bit of an equalizer. You might say it's for the guys who have that experience and the class players, and that'll come out in five sets. But I also think it's going to make them a little more vulnerable, too, because they're not going to have the same sense of solidity to their games. And these young guys, they all want to slam, and it's been, as you say, it's been all but impossible to get for the last uh, last decade. Yeah, that's true. I'll go to the women's side for a couple of minutes. I want to start with Serena Williams, who I mentioned on a conversation I had with Ben Rothberg of the NCR tennis podcast earlier this week. I feel like her committing to do this was the big deal for the USTA to actually go ahead and run the Open because she's the biggest name in women's tennis, and her commitment means a lot, and for her, this is sort of a big opportunity as well because she's been trying to get that 24th record-tying Grand Slam for a while. What do you think about her coming out here? Yeah, I was talking to Tracy Austin, former U.S. Open champion, earlier in the week, and she was, I said, they're taking some big hits here with Simona Halep, number two, out. They're missing three of the reigning four Grand Slam champions on the women's side. As Tracy goes, yeah, but the biggest hit would be not having Serena. And that's true. That's undeniably true, even more true at the U.S. Open than anywhere else, but it would be true at any of these. Maybe not Australia with uh, how popular Ash Barty is down there now, but um, the other three for sure. And I think Serena's, uh, you know, her personality and her and her quest for this 24 is uh, still the best stories in women's tennis right now. Not, not for too much longer, I don't think, but I think there's still that interest in whether she can do it. She's been so close. She's reached four Grand Slam finals since she got back. In pregnancy, she's lost all four in straight sets. Hasn't played her best tennis in those moments. I don't think her chances are great, personally. I just, from what I've seen, there are more and more players who can handle her power. More and more players who are able to rise to the occasion and play very well against her. And having watched her in Lexington, Kentucky, in her comeback, she looks awful good at times. But there are also other players who are tend to play their best against her now too. So I think it's going to be very a very tough road for her. And if she pulls it off, it'll be a even with the diminished field, it'll be a quite an achievement and, and a, probably a fitting 24 based on the fact that Margaret Court, who she's trying to tie, played a lot of her slams with understrength fields. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. Another person I'm very intrigued by on the women's draw is seeing what Coco Gauff will do now in her second U.S. Open run. I think the break may help her because I feel like she would have been stretched pretty thin trying to play all these events over the summer. I do think she'll have a good showing here. Well, the funny thing, you know, Mike, that we were talking about the age limitations on her because when she was 15, she could only play a very small number of events. She's kind of having to parse it out after her big breakthrough at Wimbledon last year, only being able to play just a few. Well, the pandemic took care of the limitations. She can play all she wants the rest of the season, pretty much. And I watched her play in Kentucky on TV, and she looked really good. Definitely uh, very much, uh, I think she's improved some things in her game. I still love the way she's playing all-court tennis. Fabulous mover on the court. Um, the serve has been a bit of an issue. Definitely can get shaky on the second serve at times and lose her rhythm. Forehand looks like they haven't worked on some of the uh, technique there, but I mean, she's got so much potential and obviously could get a tough draw. I don't, I'm not sure she'll be seated. There's still a chance she could be seated at the open, but she probably won't be. And so that she could run into anybody in the early rounds, but uh, I wouldn't want to play her right now. She's looking like she's living every day. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see, like, who are some players who you think that are not really being talked about right now you think could make, like, a decent run here at the U.S. Open on either side of the draw? Well, let's talk about on the men's side. I mean, I, aside from the, the obvious ones, which are, you know, Djokovic and team, I mean, I really, yeah, I, I guess there's guys I haven't seen in a while. Like, I, like, I thought Dennis Shapovalov, the Canadian, was playing great tennis at the end of last year. Didn't have a super great start in Australia, but he's a guy who, uh, I think it was tremendous talent and, and looks great on a hard court. And so he's a guy I definitely want to see him, how he comes out and plays. Felix Aliassim, the other Canadian guy who's a young teenager. Another fabulous talent. Those guys could have taken a big up step in the, in the uh, off season and just long five months to work on their game. They can come back very strong. Um, I think you also have to look at, uh, at Sissipas. He wouldn't be an outsider to people who follow tennis closely, but he would be an outsider to people who don't. Uh, he's in his early 20s, a um, great player who really uh, has a fantastic game, seems to love playing against the best players and likes the spotlight. No holes, very charismatic. He's a guy who could go pretty far, pretty deep. Don't know about Zverev, another guy who's obviously that younger generation who's had great success but had not had a slam yet. Had, had his best slam yet in the semis in Australia in, in January, so he could do well too. So I think those are some guys to watch for sure. Um, Got him Andre Rublev, super hard hitting Russian, skinny, doesn't appear to have much power, but he has tremendous power and he was playing great before the break as well. So we'll watch those guys. On the women's side, it's a long list, you know, it's just, it's hard to know where to start. I look at somebody like um, on the outsider list, you know, I guess I'd be in, really intrigued to watch Coco, I think for sure, because of how where she's at. There's a player from Ukraine named Diana Yastremska who is uh, in her, I think, just turned 20, and she is a huge hitter of the ball and very athletic. Um, a little unpredictable at the moment, but I think she's somebody who's got tremendous talent and we'll hear a lot from her in the years to come and she could have a you know, breakout at U.S. Open. Petra Kvitova, you wouldn't call her an outsider, but she's outside the top 10 right now, two-time Wimbledon champion. Never really played her best best at the U.S. Open. She's looked good in the break when I watched her in exhibitions, and she's a woman who's... Uh, I think had a lot of great form in the last couple of years, and she's a veteran. I think who could easily win the title. So, those would be some names to watch. I think. Yeah, it does sound interesting. Again, talking about Christopher Clare in the New York Times. My last question for you is this: and it's an idea I've been thinking about it late because the French Open moved back, and it's so closely tied on the calendar to the U.S. Open now. They're only two weeks apart at the end. Do you think that it's more an advantage for players to do well in the French if they're playing here or to stay if they had not chosen not to come here and chose to prepare just for the clay court event? What do you, do you think that one will impact the other? Yeah. One quick thing before we go on to that, like I realized I forgot one person. I think the person you want to watch at the open is on the women's side is Jennifer Brady, yeah. an American player who just uh, won the tournament in Lexington. Didn't, didn't drop the set in the whole tournament. She seems to have taken her game to another level uh, this season and, and in the break and, very powerful player and talented player is in great shape now. So that's another name to watch. As for, as for your last question, I mean, I feel like, you know, it's a tight turnaround. Two weeks plus the transatlantic journey and the change of surface. That's tough. I mean, for years and years, only a two-week break between the French Open and Wimbledon. Um, but that was going from clay to grass, which maybe isn't such a hard thing in terms of the pounding on the body as a hard court. And also, it was basically in the same time zone, one time zone away from France to London. This will be a whole different challenge in terms of just the recovery. So I think it will, the guys who go really deep at the U.S. Open, I think it's going to be tough to go to the French Open and, 
and win the title or go super deep there too. Novak could probably pull it off just with his talent and his experience, but it's that's a huge challenge. I think the guys like Rafa who committed to staying over there or somebody like the Kiki Burton's on the women's side who loves clay and instead decided to stay or Simona Halep whose best surface probably still is clay. Um, I think the Halep and, and Rafa probably helped their chances at the French this year by making that decision. They can train on the surface the whole time. Their body will be fully adapted. They won't have the jet lag or the fatigue. Um, so I think there is that issue. But I like Novak. He play on anything. He's won on everything. But hard courts really are his very best surface. And so I think it's great he came. You know, it's been a long road to get there. But um, if anybody can pull off a double, he would be the one. But I think it'll be harder than ever this year. All right, Christopher Clary of the New York Times. Thank you for taking the time to do this today. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people follow you on social media and keep up with your coverage of tennis in the New York Times? Yeah, I hope you hope everybody follows along. It's great, it's great to talk to you, and I really appreciate the time. It's a real pleasure. All right, folks, and there you have it. That was Christopher Clary from the New York Times. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at Christoph Clary, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H. C-L-A-R-E-Y on Twitter. I will put that in the show notes, as well as a link to his great story with Novak Djokovic. It's a very good read. I will put that in there for you as well. That's going to be it for this week's bonus episode of the podcast. I want to make sure, again, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, all the usual suspects, YouTube as well, for all the individual things. This conversation with Christopher Clary will be up there on YouTube as well. It's Mike Phillips on YouTube. Feel free to your feedback and star ratings. I'll make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet with the hashtag US Open Bubble if you made it to the end of this week's podcast. Again, US Open Bubble. If you want more tennis podcasts, you can also go back to earlier in the week when I spoke to Ben Rothenberg of the NCR Tennis Podcast for more tennis talk. So we're getting ready for the US Open, which begins on Monday at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center down in down in Queens. And that's it for now. Coming up soon, our fantasy football preview podcast, NFL over-unders, and more. Until then, stay safe, everybody. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.